In today's episode, we'll talk with one of our favorite poets, Nandi Comer. Welcome to episode six of The Chatbook. I'm your host, Noah Stetzer. And I'm Ross White. Noah and I are directors and editors at Bull City Press, which publishes chapbooks and occasionally full-length books of poetry, fiction, and nonfiction. We started this podcast to talk about our love of chapbooks, to demystify the publishing process, and to share chapbook news and happenings. I am so excited about today's guest because she's an old friend. We were on the phone last Friday, started talking about chapbooks, and I was like, oh my God, we have to get you on the podcast because you're brilliant. It's so exciting to have Nandi Comer with us today, don't you think? I am pumped. Nandi Comer is the author of Tapping Out from Northwestern University Press in 2020, which was a co-winner of the Julie Suk Award and the 2021 winner of the Society of Midland Authors Award. She's also the author of the chapbook American Family, A Syndrome, from Finishing Line Press, all the way back in 2018. A Cave Canem Fellow, a Callaloo Fellow, and the director of the Allied Media Project Speakers Bureau, Nandi lives in Detroit, Michigan. Welcome, Nandi. Hello. Oh, my God. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So... Nandi, I want to start off with this because when we were chatting last Friday, talking about chapbooks, we ended up kind of wandering into the difference between the chapbook and the full length. And your full length book, your first full length is almost completely separate from your chapbook with just like a little bit of connective tissue. But talk to us first about what is it about the chapbook form that resonates so strongly with you as an individual thing? You know, I... I really respect writers that use the chapbook as a way, as a jumping off point into their full collection. I think that there's a specific kind of approach to that kind of project, but I, I have to say that I'm most fascinated and most taken by the chapbook that is its own project that doesn't have the idea of another book in mind. Um, they're not withholding from me any information, everything that they wanted to give is within that 35, 40 pages, whatever the page limit is, three pages, you know, sometimes <laughs> chapbooks come really short. And I love that because it means that you really are thinking about the project. There's all this opportunity within this short kind of format. And so I've been thinking about, we. I've heard you all talk about authors that have published many books and then they go back to the chapbook. And I always like wonder about like, what happened that this project needed to be this short? And so even in my own books, I had written tapping out and I felt like it was done and I was shopping it around, but I was going through this moment of grief, like this really just traumatic experiences along with these the national kind of attention being drawn to the violence on the black body and the history of violence in the black body. And so I've been writing these poems that there was a moment where I felt like I was starting to feel healed by my own personal grief, that I didn't think that I could continue writing those poems. And so American Family kind of ended itself in its own way, even though there was still a lot of revisions that happened with it. There was a particular way in which I was approaching grief and approaching these these issues that I didn't think I could sustain. 
And I wasn't thinking about sustaining it for a whole book. I was just thinking like, oh, these poems are what I have done. I don't know how else I'll contribute to them. And then as I started to look at my own grief poems, I saw how they were connected. And I thought, oh, that's that's the project. And I didn't want to I didn't want to make it a full net. And so I looked for a place that would that was interested in publishing it as it was. What's really interesting about that to me is I think a lot of times first book poets struggle to know when the book is done. They'll spend a long time shuffling poems in and out. You know, it goes out to editors. It goes out to contests. Sometimes they get some good feedback. They're semifinalist or finalist in the contest. They think they're close and they think, well, let me start to tinker with this poem and that poem. And so the book sort of ends up feeling never ending, even though eventually it ends. Yeah. There is something about the chapbook form that can encourage you to say, I'm ready to shut the door. Yeah. And I think a lot, I, I go back to the idea that project, well, it can't just be about, sometimes it's not just about the poems. Sometimes it's about the opportunity. And so I am really drawn to, to the handmade, the self-made, the hands-on kind of books. When I I usually only can find them when I'm at a book fair or at like AWP where all these presses have come and really putting their their most beautiful books on display. I love to go to those small presses that spend the time to like really think about how this book will be packaged. And so you find books that are not in the typical form of the chat book. You find books that are enveloped and their own handmade packaging. And so I get really excited about like, oh, there's a project that happened that wasn't about just shuffling the poems around, that it actually thought about the material experience of the reader as well. That's a quality of chat books that I think that, that also echoes with me is that yeah, in their physical embodiment, they, they're showing their ability to be one of a kind and unique and maybe on the fringe or around the edges and maybe a little subversive, right? They're like, they're, they're sort of upending basic sort of standardized publishing and, and drifting over into art and craft, mixing that with literature and poetry and writing. Um, and I do think there's that idea of chapbooks being, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, untraditional or subversive really or- punk is what I think of, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Right. So I think, I think it's because I was a teenager and an early and a young adult in the 90s in the slam culture when everybody, I mean, people still tour a lot, but- in the touring world where all you wanted was to have something to leave with your audience. You just, you didn't necessarily feel like you were ready to publish a whole book. You just wanted to be able to share this material thing that, a, that your audience member could take with you. And so sometimes it just meant like a couple of pages stapled together. But then one of my favorite chat books that I got was from a duo poetry uh, music making group called Climbing Poetry. And it was a manila envelope that was hand screen printed. And then it was folded over and fastened with Starbucks stirs 
and rubber bands. And I still hold it, even though the rubber bands are kind of falling apart due to time. But I got that maybe 15 years ago, and I still direct my students' attention to the possibility of self-publication, that it doesn't necessarily mean going to Amazon to pay for printing. Sometimes it mean, it's, it's that zine culture that I think sometimes we forget that poets can be subversive, not just in their poems, but in the way that they're deciding to present their poems too. And this, and especially for um, for artists that are working in multiple genres or multiple disciplines, this can be a really a really wide space to really work through all of your talents in a sense and work through your imagination of what your book can actually be. What I love about The Handmade Book is that with each copy, the possibility exists that it won't be perfect, that it may be a little rough around the edges, that the cut may be a little bit different. And that lack of uniformity to me means that those rough edges haven't necessarily been polished out. And that's something that I find myself admiring in the energy of a lot of poems. So in that sense, sometimes the physical form is deeply matched to the content. Yeah, I totally agree with that. There's this other thing that we were talking about the subversiveness and I think about some of the first publishers of chat books that were doing it because their their authors weren't getting opportunities to publish. And I think that a lot of presses now still lead by that example. But I think about a history such as like Broadside Press, which is now Broadside Lotus Press. I mean, they were some of the first people to publish like Nikki Giovanni and Amiri Baraka. And so you had people that weren't gaining, didn't have that space. And that's another place where the chapbook can be really um, an opportunity because whereas like a lot of poets are like, I have this first book that I'm working on that I know will get published eventually. And then so in the meantime, I'll publish this chat book because it's a guaranteed publication. I wonder about the writers that feel like, actually, I am really writing counter to the narrative that's happening in the world right now. Is this an opportunity, is a chat book an opportunity for me to find a press that is really thinking about how to write cutting, how to publish and put out cutting edge work and material? The chat book might be the place where you can start and then even establish your own movement, much like these writers did. A lot of what we're talking about right now and what you're saying makes me think of when I hear comedians talk about taking new material to small clubs around the country, you know, to try it out. And I really find myself impressed and captivated by that. The whole idea of like going in front of a group of strangers and working out material that you may not be completely sure of yet, but you have enough passion and commitment to it that you're putting yourself on the line. I do really like that idea of allowing this imperfection in the work when we're so driven to perfection. And I believe me, I am not one to like, I want to see craft when I read a poem, but I think that we can like extend the craft to saying like, oh, actually the craft is that you're trying to work through this idea. And it's I don't know. It, it, I think it's really interesting looking at the lives of writers and seeing how they change a line between publications, mm. how they've spaced out the breath between the publication of the chapbook and the publication that they had online prior to publishing the chapbook. It's really, I think it tells us a lot more 
or there are some journals that do like the tell us about the life of this poem. But I think it does us some service to be able to let yourself lift the shade a little bit. It's okay. You know, we don't always give ourselves permission for that. Well, and one of the great joys of reading is following a writer over the arc of a career and seeing them grow in public. And while I really also enjoy seeing how a poem might change between publications, there's always the danger of polishing out all the rough edges so that it loses its energy. It loses its joy. It loses the thing that made it an artifact of its time and place. When you're, when a poet, and we've all, I think we all have done this before. We've edited ourselves out of a good poem. (laughs) (laughs) Guilty. I mention this sometimes that there's a poem of mine that's in both the chapbook and my full length, even though they're completely different projects. And I didn't change that poem, but the poem has a different resonance within the collection. So I think that's also something that people can think about as they're constructing their projects is what are you, what are the key poems that you're choosing and how does that, like, how does that affect the rest of the work? How does it create the collection in a sense? One in one book, it's definitely about grief. And then in another book, there's grieving, but there's also this sense of coming home that once it's placed with all these other poems about home, then there's this other kind of expectation out of the poem. Nandi, would you read a poem from American Family Syndrome? Sure. I just want to introduce this a little bit. The the title poems, American Family Syndrome, are two-part poems that are written in two voices. And the first voice that I'll read is the scientific voice describing a syndrome, which are all invented syndromes based on real things that I've seen in the community. American Family, a syndrome, singing skin disorder, inconclusive disorder. Patients under observation have displayed symptoms of singing skin disorder, where patients pores emit a melody-like auditory sound, much like that of a bird or whale call. Patients with darker pigmentation appear to have larger pores, and oftentimes their skin emits an offensive, less melodic tonal pitch than those with less melanin. Under microscopic evaluation of skin samples, there seems to be no distinguishable markers in any of the documented singing skin disorder patients that differentiate them from non-SSD patients. All of the doctors in our observation facilities have heard the songs. Patients under observation report hearing skin songs of other patients. However, all evidence point to a lack of auditory recognition of their own, leaving us to believe this is a type of auditory pheromone or territorial marking made by the body wherein the host is unaware. On occasion, we have tried to record the music of SSD patients, but upon playback, the recordings contain no sound. Along with no evidence of patients hearing their own skin, the lack of documentation leaves us leaves doubt as to if the songs actually exist. Whether SSD is temporary, permanent, or actual is inconclusive. Singing skin disorder. It's the humming, not notes, not a melody. It's a signal a rattle nesting in my joints, like the snarl of yard mutts, the clipped chirp of an unhinged ceiling fan. 
When they sit near me, some brown soupy ditty scurries down my spine like they've trapped a rusty robin in their elbows, modulated and molded, poured, pockmarked, smooth as an infant's innocence, skin. There's this thing I see every morning on the AM bus, who sees 12-year-old legs, a book bag, a girl. It says, come. It sings, I am your now. This high-pitched lilt chucks its volume down the street. Its trickster blow-pop smile is a mistake, is anger, a willy glutteral ruse. Deep under her skin, her hollow jingle jabs my ribs, makes me want to slam a face to the ground. Such danger in those open hands. Can't you hear the quiet composition, the falsetto pitch and thrust? Oh, to have that song running, running, running through me. Thank you. Thank you so much for reading. That was just terrific. And Nandi, what's the best place for people to find you online if they want to learn more about you or get to follow a little bit more closely some of your work? Sure. It seems like uh, Nandi Comer at everything is always mine. So <laughs> uh, at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, that's that's where you can find me, Nandi Comer. And then I have a website that's the same thing, NandiComer.com. And you can purchase copies of her book through that website. Nandi, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. This was so much fun. Listen, folks, if you like the podcast, why not go ahead and click subscribe or better yet, tell a friend. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and all the other major pod places. Every review matters for a tiny little podcast like this one. So if you have a moment, let us know what you think. You can find us uh, and you can find out about our friends at Bull City Press by following us on Twitter and Instagram. We are at Bull City Press or you can visit us at BullCityPress.com. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at DC Noah. And you can find me at Ross White. You can also email us at chatbook at bullcitypress.com. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you so much, Nandi Comer, for joining us today. It was a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you, guys. Oh, you're so amazing. Thank you. <laughs>